Throughout history, we can find a lot of cases of things like Munchausen syndrome, where a person suffers from a psychological condition, where they pretend to be sick so that people can care for them because they seek the attention that would come or does come with that. This week, though, we are going to look at a case where a woman went way above and beyond physical illness to get attention, and ultimately she got money for a case that garnered local, national, and even international attention. In the end, I don't know that we fully understand why, or that we ever will understand why, she went to the lengths that she did to lie to seemingly everyone in her life. Thankfully, though, as we can only hope will happen when someone spins a web of lies, her house of cards came tumbling down, and then the truth came out. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 120 of Gone But Never Forgotten, covering up lies until the bitter end, the strange case of Sherry Papini. Sherry Louise Grafe was born on June 11th of 1982 to Richard and Loretta Grafe, and she grew up in Redding, California. Her childhood was one that was marked by adventure as well as with adversity. Sherry, as a child, was known as a girl who was always adventurous and who was always looking to explore. From an early age, her parents taught her to be incredibly independent and incredibly resilient. She was known to enjoy exploring the beauty of her surroundings around her home, and then as she grew up around her anywhere that she ventured. The flip side of Sherry as she grew up, though, was that adversity. When Sherry was 18 years old, her father Richard reported and alleged that she had broken into his home with the intent to commit theft. Around that same age, Sherry's mother, Loretta, expressed concerns for her daughter's well-being because she said that Sherry was causing harm to herself and then trying to blame the injuries on her mother. A few years later, when Sherry was in her 20s, Richard would say that Sherry had made withdrawals from his bank account that were absolutely unauthorized. All of those incidents were reported to police, who reportedly gave the family advice on how to deal with a troubled teen and a troubled young adult. Further to all of that, in 2003, a police report showed that Sherry had run away as a teenager and that she had accused her parents of abuse. Police would determine through subsequent investigation, though, that she was making those claims up 
and ultimately every one of her claims was determined to be false. To summarize, it would seem that the first 20 or so years of Sherry's life with her family was a mixture of love and turmoil. Very early in her life, in middle school, Sherry would meet a young man named Keith Papini, and the two would have their first kiss together. Over time, their young relationship would come to an end, and they would lose contact for many years, but as we will discuss, ultimately, they would reconnect later in life. In 2006, when she was, she would have been 23 years old, Sherry would get married for the first time to a man named David Dreyfus. During later court proceedings, it would come out that investigators found that even that marriage had been a farce. According to Sherry's mother, Sherry and David had traveled around the world together for a time, and they had lived together. But it would later be discovered through David that the two had never lived together, and that they had only been abroad together one time, and that was when Sherry had visited him while he was deployed in Japan. David was a member of the military, and David said that he and Sherry had actually gotten married so that she would have access to his health insurance, because she was experiencing health problems due to the fact that she had been giving regular egg donations for many years. David also said that Sherry had told him that she had been abused extensively by her parents growing up. When the man returned from his deployment overseas in 2007, Sherry informed him that she wanted to have a divorce because she had found someone else that she wanted to be with. Sherry and Keith would reconnect later, and as mentioned, they first met when Keith was in 7th grade and Sherry was in 8th grade. In her blog online about her wedding, she laid out that when the two reconnected, it was love at first sight, and by the time that they had been on three dates together, they both knew that they were head over heels for one another, and she also said that they had then spent every day together since, growing a blossoming and a torrid love. She said in that blog that Keith made her happier than she had ever been in her entire life and she said that their lives were full of life, love, and laughter. Sherry said that they were best friends, and that they were indeed the perfect couple. On October 10th of 2009, the two would get married, and then they would ultimately have two children together, Tyler and Violet. Everyone that knew the couple from a distance believed that everything was indeed beyond perfect for the young family. It would seem that for many years the lives of Sherry and Keith and their children were largely uneventful. That was until November 2nd of 2016. On that date, Sherry would go out for a jog near their home in Shasta County, California, and she was last seen by anyone at approximately 2 p.m. When Keith came home that day from work around 5 p.m., he immediately knew that something was wrong. He arrived home, and he discovered that neither Sherry nor their children were home, which was incredibly strange and out of character. 
Keith astutely decided to call the person that looked after Tyler and Violet to find out what time Sherry had come by to pick the children up. When he was told that the children were still there, Keith immediately knew that something was very wrong. He tried to use the Find My Phone app to locate Sherry's cell phone and her earbuds, and they were found at the intersection of Sunrise Drive and Old Oregon Trail, which was approximately one mile away from their home. Keith would report Sherry as missing that night, and an extensive search would start for Sherry, who was now 34 years old. It was believed by Kevin and by investigators very early on that Sherry had been the victim of a kidnapping. The problem, though, was that there was very little to go on from the very beginning. All that the investigators really had to go off of was the fact that Sherry's belongings had been found alongside the road, and Sherry had gone, seemingly alone, for a jog. Even though there was very little to go off of, the disappearance of Sherry was incredibly extensive and very widespread, the search for her, that is, because investigators were not really able to narrow a search for any reason. The authorities in Reading immediately launched a massive search effort to try and locate Sherry, or any evidence of Sherry. The community came alongside Kevin, the children, and law enforcement, and people seemed to be working very hard together to try and locate Sherry. Search parties were put together, flyers were developed and distributed, and the media and everyone worked hard to get Sherry's disappearance visible to the general public and to keep her story out there going strong. As days passed, though, sadly there was no evidence and no sign of Sherry to be seen or found anywhere. As days turned to weeks, investigators started to reach out to authorities in neighboring and nearby states to try and raise even more awareness and to try to get help in other locales trying to find any leads in this missing person case. Over time, things started to transfer from the state level to the federal level, as the FBI would become actively involved in the case as well, and they started to use their expertise, their resources, and their nationwide network to try in any way possible to help to locate Sherry. Overall, more than $230,000 U.S. was spent on the case, and that doesn't even include the countless hours that were spent by authorities of all shapes and sizes in the search. Finally, there was a massive break in the case. After being missing for three weeks, Sherry was found in the early hours of Thanksgiving Day, approximately 150 miles to the south of where her phone and her earbuds had been found. She was found alongside Interstate 5 in a rural area of Yolo County, and she still had restraints on her person in the form of a chain around her waist, and she had numerous injuries all over her body. Sherry appeared to have been starved. She was down to only 87 pounds, and she was completely covered in multicolored bruises all over her body. 
The bridge of her nose was also broken, and it appeared as though her hair, which was always characteristically long, had been chopped off by whoever had kidnapped her. Investigators believed initially that everything that was done to her was clearly an exertion of power and also an attempt to completely humiliate the beautiful young woman to wear her down and show that she was worthless to them. Sherry also had been branded on her right shoulder, but the branding was a mess, and authorities were not able to understand what the point of the branding was. Sherry would give varying explanations over time about the branding, saying that she believed that it was biblical in nature from the book of Exodus, but also later saying that the abductors had told her that it was something to do with the person that she was allegedly supposed to be sex trafficked to, who she said worked in law enforcement in some way, shape, or form. Sherry was ultimately able to flag down a vehicle in spite of her restraints, and a 911 call was made by a man who saw her while passing by. Sherry told authorities that she had been kidnapped and ultimately released by two Hispanic women in an SUV who were armed with at least a handgun. Authorities immediately held a press conference to alert the public of those facts so that they could be diligent, but also keep their eyes out for any sign of these two women. Sherry said that the women had forced her into their SUV at gunpoint. Sherry's family, as one can really only imagine, was absolutely ecstatic to have Sherry returned, even in a beaten and bruised state. It eased their minds, and she was even home in time for the holidays. Sherry's sister even told People Magazine in an interview, quote, I feel like it was a whole world effort, just with everyone posting on Facebook and the news coverage that we got. It was an amazing Thanksgiving, unquote. As exciting as things were with the safe return of Sherry, it didn't take too long for things to start to unravel a bit in the investigation and the story that Sherry was telling. One of the things that investigators were able to uncover quickly was that there was DNA evidence on Sherry's clothing that they were able to obtain and send in for testing in hopes that it would provide a lead in the case. Unfortunately, the DNA evidence did not have any hits in the database, but something strange certainly still emerged from that DNA. The DNA belonged to a male, which seemed pretty contradictory to everything that Sherry was saying about the two women that had kidnapped her and about her entire ordeal. On October 20th of 2017, the FBI would release sketches of the two women that Sherry had described to investigators. I should note that in multiple interviews by this point, Sherry had seemed to be less than forthcoming with details about what had happened to her and about her captives. For investigators, it was akin to pulling teeth, as the old adage goes, to get information from her. Sherry said that she was nervous because she was told that the person behind her kidnapping was from law enforcement, and that meant that she didn't know who may still be watching her or still be after her. 
The only descriptions that the sketch artists were able to really get from Sherry was that one of the women was in her 20s or 30s, and she was approximately 5 foot 5 inches tall, with a medium build and coarse, curly dark hair. She also had thin eyebrows and pierced ears. The second woman was said to be in her 40s, and she was 5 foot 7 inches tall, and she had straight dark hair with some gray in it and thick eyebrows. Sherry also said that the two women had always gone to great lengths to keep the majority of their faces covered so that she could not see them. The vehicle that the suspects were using was described by Sherry as a dark-colored SUV with a large rear window. Sherry would eventually open up further, and she would say that she had been held hostage in a closet and that she was chained to a pole. She said that the windows where she was were boarded up and that she was very cold the entire time that she was held. She also said that her captives listened to, quote, really annoying Mexican music, unquote, all the time. She also said that she was only fed once a day and that her meals were made up of rice, tortillas, and apples. Sherry said that she was released after she heard the two women fighting, and she said that she also heard a gunshot while they were arguing. After that, she said that the younger cat, uh, woman had taken her from wherever she was and dropped her off on the side of the highway. And so, the investigators continued in earnest. Investigators were looking for the SUV, they were looking for two Hispanic women, and they were looking for anything else that they could find in terms of evidence. Over the investigation, detectives conducted 20 different search warrants, even as far away as Michigan, and they also spent a lot of time examining cell phone records, bank accounts, and even social media accounts to try and get a break in the case. Meanwhile, Hispanic women living in California were afraid that people would look at them and deem that they looked like one of the renderings that was now public. California's Hispanic population makes up almost 40% of the state, so you can imagine the shockwaves that were being felt within that community. It would take a lot of time before investigators started to break the case, but I should mention here that many people who were working the case were starting to wonder what was truly going on. Some things did not add up, including very specific details about some circumstances that were described by Sherry, followed by other things with no explanation that seemed very basic. Also, investigators started to note inconsistencies in Sherry's story. What would amount to really one of the major breaks in the case was when investigators got permission to run the male DNA that they found on Sherry's clothing against DNA databases like 23andMe and Ancestry, and it would be effective. The permission was granted on March 19th of 2020, and the DNA was a close match to a man in one of those databases. That man had two sons, and one of those sons turned out to be an ex-boyfriend of Sherry Papini.
On June 9th of 2020, investigators were tracking the man in question. His name was James Reyes, and they managed to get his DNA from an iced tea bottle in his garbage and match it to the sample that they had found on Sherry's clothing. Investigators would attend James's home on August 10th of 2020 and conduct an interview with him. The interview would go for approximately one hour, and James started by denying that he knew anything about Sherry's disappearance, except for what he had seen in the media. And James also said that he had not had any contact with Sherry for many, many years. However, as he was pressed, the truth started to come out. James said that Sherry had contacted him and told him that Kevin had been abusing her and sexually assaulting her, and that she needed to get away from everything before it escalated. She also said that she had notified the police of the abuse, but that the police had not stepped in and changed anything at all. James said that the two came up with a plot where James would pick Sherry up in Reading and take her to his home in Costa Mesa to get her out of that situation. Costa Mesa is approximately 600 miles away from Reading. James also told investigators that while Sherry stayed at his house, she had secluded herself in a room by herself for most of the time that she was there, and he also said that she had hit herself, bruised herself, burnt herself, cut off her own hair, and even asked him to help her brand herself. James said that after the three weeks at his home, she had told him in no uncertain terms that she missed her family and that she wanted to go home. And so he had done as she asked of him and dropped her off on the side of the road with the restraints still on her person. After that, Sherry was interviewed again on August 13th, three days later, and she was advised that it was a crime to lie to federal agents, and she was confronted with the evidence that she was not abducted at all and that she was in fact the orchestrator of the entire ordeal. Sherry, though, doubled down in the face of all of the evidence, and she continued to lie to investigators and tell them of the scenario that most investigators now believed was entirely fabricated. She also categorically denied that James had had anything to do with her alleged abduction. On top of the fact that Sherry was seemingly wasting everyone's time now, she had also received over $30,000 from the California Victims' Compensation Board for victim assistance. She had used that money to reimburse herself for therapy sessions, ambulance services, and other miscellaneous things like blinds for her home. At least one of those reimbursements came via the U.S. Mail Service, which will come into play later. Sherry had also used money that was crowdfunded to pay off credit card debts. The GoFundMe had raised $49,070. After much investigation, the house of cards that Sherry had built for herself completely fell, and she was arrested on March 3rd of 2022 by the FBI. 
and she was accused of lying to federal agents and accused of faking her kidnapping. She was also charged for mail fraud for the use of the U.S. Postal Service in her fraud. Her arrest, though, was even as ludicrous as the case. Just like this entire story, for that matter, law enforcement followed her as she took her children to music lessons because they wanted to arrest Sherry when the children were not with her so that they could protect the children from the situation and protect them in the event that they needed to use any force to arrest Sherry. Sherry was told that there was an accident involving her vehicle, and she came out of the music lessons alone and was told then that she was under arrest. Sherry responded by yelling no at the agent, and then she ran away and threw her phone. All of that, though, was obviously for naught. Six weeks after her arrest on April 18th of 2022, Sherry Papini would sign a plea deal, and she admitted that she had orchestrated the entire abduction and the entire hoax. She pled guilty to mail fraud and pled guilty to making false statements to a federal agent. She said that she was embarrassed and that she would embark on a lifelong mission to atone for what she had done. She did face a maximum sentence for her crimes of 25 years in prison and a maximum fine of $600,000 U.S. When Sherry was arrested, Kevin and her separated, and they would ultimately file for divorce with Kevin fighting for custody of the couple's two children, who had been through a whole heck of a lot at this point. In September of 2022, Sherry was sentenced to only 18 months in prison, and she was fined $309,000 U.S., which was deemed the amount of restitution that was owed for all of the resources that she had cost various levels of law enforcement over the length of the investigation and her, her abduction. In court, Sherry would say, quote, I stand before you humbled by the court. I'm so sorry to the many people who have suffered because of me. I thank you all. I am guilty of lying and dishonor. I trust in this court and I trust in you. What was done cannot be undone. I am choosing to humbly accept all responsibility." Unquote. Sherry never told anyone what her motive was for this entire ordeal. A psychiatrist of hers would suggest that Sherry was seeking fame and fortune, or that she was perhaps looking to avoid a real-life trauma such as divorce, and instead of facing whatever her issues were, she may have concocted the entire idea. What is interesting is the fact that this entire hoax seemed to resemble a case that Sherry would have been very familiar with. A classmate of hers in 1998, 16-year-old Tara Smith, had gone jogging out on Old Oregon Trail, the same road that Sherry had allegedly gone missing from on August 22nd of 1998. Tara was never seen again, 
After Sherry returned home, she actually had the nerve to reach out to Tara's family and even visit them because she said that she and her their daughter had been through similar situations. She would wind up serving much less than 18 months in prison, and she was released from prison in August of 2023 and placed into a halfway house. In October of 2023, she was released from the halfway house, and then she no-showed a court proceeding that was related to her divorce from Kevin before the two finally worked towards their divorce in late 2023. And that is where it appears that the public story ends for now, and hopefully for good. This one was an absolutely crazy story. I've heard of and known of people who make up stories and lies and sicknesses for attention and notoriety, but this really does take things to an entirely new level. I hope for Sherry's sake and frankly for the sake of everyone else that she gets her life together and is able to turn this massive ship that is her clear mental health struggles and need for attention around. People that knew Sherry said that she was sweet and that she was a caring mother and there's no denying that she was a beautiful and driven woman when she wanted to be. Sherry Papini had and has a lot of things going for her, and she was lucky enough to avoid a massive prison term. So, there is certainly hope and time for her to rebuild her life and rebuild herself with the proper help and guidance. For everyone else that was involved, from Kevin to James to the children... I hope that everyone is able to move on with their lives and get over the trauma and the horrible things that Sherry put them all through. Lies are truly one of the things that cause the most damage in lives and in relationships. And frankly, if you ask me, they are one of the silliest things that have become entrenched in our society. People do evil things like this, and then they either lie to get there or they lie to cover it up, and all that they wind up doing is hurting other people even more. It's a crazy world out there, people. Be truthful, be better, and don't forget to tune back in to Gone But Never Forgotten next week. Thank you for listening, and take care.